there. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Going Up, Going Down podcast. It is an EFL podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell. With me, George Ellick as ever. Now, we're actually putting EFL completed on pause because this week has been a huge week in the EFL. And in this episode, we're going to tackle some of the issues that have been chucked up uh, in various different manners during the EFL week. We'll be talking to the athletic writer Jack Pitt-Brook, who has been covering the uh, current situation surrounding the ownership of Charlton Athletic very closely, getting all the info from Jack. We'll talk to Craig McHale-Smith as well, a well-known EFL goalscorer for over a decade now. We wanted to get the perspective of an EFL player facing the Uh, situation of being out of contract in just a few weeks' time and what that means in the COVID-19 era. Uh, And also Pete Kuig, part of the ownership team at Wickham Wanderers. We'll get his reaction to Tuesday's big day of decisions in the EFL, what it means for Wickham uh, with them heading into the League One playoffs, both the positive and potentially negative parts of the impact for Wickham Wanderers. And George, uh, there is the place to go, only one place to go if anyone needs a a sort of primer, I suppose, a full breakdown of what happened on Tuesday. Yeah, if you are listening to this without knowing what's happened in League One and League Two after the meetings on Tuesday, then go and read Matt Slater's piece. Matt has been all over this story since uh, football stopped in mid-March. He's written a piece, explained who are the winners and losers of PPG lottery in League One and League Two and what now. So I definitely recommend that you read that if you haven't signed up to the athletic yet now is a brilliant time to do so given we are about to have so many games of football and so many stories over the next month or so you get 30 days for free a 30-day free trial if you go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash efl pod you'll also get ad free versions of all of the athletic podcasts so all the podcasts are free but for ad free versions you will get those as well so go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash EFL pod. We are delighted to welcome Wickham Wanderers CFO Pete Kuig onto the show, nephew of Chairboy's owner Rob Kuig, whose purchase of the club was finally confirmed in February. Fair to say things haven't gone as expected since then due to the coronavirus outbreak, but after League One clubs overwhelmingly voted in favour of curtailing the season, Wickham were bumped up from 8th into 3rd on PPG and are now gearing up for a two-legged playoff semi-final against Joey Barton's Fleetwood Town. It's not all good news from Adams Park though, as after the club released a statement outlining just how much financial difficulty the current circumstances have left them in, and with fears as to how this could further be exacerbated by an unsuccessful playoff campaign. So, Pete, firstly, let's start on the positives. Congratulations. I mean, I'm guessing there's absolutely no doubt in your mind that you deserve your spot in the League One playoffs. Yeah, 100%. Um, We have been at the top of the table or in the top two almost the entire season. Uh, The first time we went out of the uh, top six, uh, I think the first time and only time all season, was that last week when we were supposed to play Barry and uh, everybody else played. Were you in the League One meetings at the time? Were you, were you the representative or were you just catching up afterwards when you had what? what yeah, no, uh, I've been on all the League One meetings since the beginning. What were they like? <laughs> exactly like you would expect. Uh, you know, coronavirus threw everybody into... Um, 
just an, uh, it was an unbelievable situation. When everything was canceled, it just, you look at the table as it stood then, you have to feel for everybody in this situation because uh, I think we were robbed of probably what could have been one of the greatest playoff races in League One history. One of the complaints from, well, various people involved is how long uh, all of this took to shake out and League One specifically uh, taking a long time to work out to make a decision, shall I say. And part of that was down to the very way that the uh, governance of the EFL works with clubs having to uh, vote things through, the majority of clubs, and also the EFL feeling the need to allow clubs to propose their own uh, framework, sort of rivals, I suppose, to the EFL's own um, points-per-game unweighted framework that ultimately um, was passed through. I'm interested to know your thoughts, especially with your experience of American sports and how things are done there. Corporate structures aren't easy when you have a number of different interests involved. And if you think about the way that the EFL is structured, especially since it's, there's definitely a relationship with the Premier League as well, you're talking about an, an organization where you have clubs with turnover of a billion dollars down to clubs with a couple of million pounds, sorry, pounds, all belonging to the same pyramid. Having been a, a, a fan of English football my entire life, I understand how people would want and would would think that the EFL should just be able to grab the reins, but the EFL doesn't own the system. The system is not owned by it's the system is owned by a collective of individual clubs that have their own owners. And so, do I think it's the most efficient corporate corporate governance structure? Uh, that could exist? Uh, absolutely not. I think there's some, there's definitely um, some of the particulars of, of how everything works has sort of lent itself to creating the issues, the problems um, that were just exacerbated by the coronavirus situation. The, the tables ended up being decided by unweighted points per game, which is probably the most simple method of kind of organising the teams with a curtailment of the season. Now, for anyone who doesn't know you, Pete, it, we can tell them that you're a self-confessed analytics nerd, it's fair to say, <laughs> as, as, are, as are me and Ali as well. If, if you were put in charge of this, just for, you know, for the sake of, of the conversation, what model would you have implemented? Because a lot of people say that this isn't a particularly fair way of, of concluding the season. So what do you think would, be, would have been the fairest way of doing so? First of all, the only fair way is to play out the matches. Um, that is the only fair way. Once you get beyond there, most fair to least fair is a very uh, subjective way to look at things. Very early on, because of Barry, there was an unbalanced table. Um, and I, I don't know if supporters are aware of this to the level that it exists, but there are match bonus contracts with players and ours, uh, which was signed with the players before we arrived, was based on table position. When we started looking at it, you know, uh, at, at some points early on, our players kind of got screwed on their match day bonus because they were in third or fourth because we maybe have, had played less games. And in some points, we were uh, first or second. Um, I, I, I can't remember because it was 10 months, 10 months slash 85,000 years ago, um, but uh, 
you know, it was it was interesting to see early on, um, you know, and obviously we took, you know, we took the English approach with the match day bonuses uh, in the fact that if we were first or second in the standings and we won the match, drew the match, we calculated based on how the tables were published in England. But I've always looked at it in a different manner than than I think most, if not all, uh, English people. Pete, uh, Wickham are heading into the playoffs, uh, one of four teams who whose seasons have been extended, have an opportunity to win promotion to the championship. Uh, I'm interested from a, from a business perspective and someone involved within the club as to whether taking part in the playoffs might potentially push problems that you could have faced now that the decision has been made down the line to a, to a potentially worrying extent. You know, you've got a, a one in four chance of going up, uh, but for the three teams that don't go up, do you expect there to be issues essentially based on their participation in the playoffs? And what are those issues? Well, I mean, just consider what the other 19 clubs in League One next year are doing right now. Uh, and I guess there's 20. Um, they are all currently able to furlough their players plan for next year under a couple of different scenarios. They're able to start looking at uh, the players that are going to be, I mean, they basically get to start planning right now, you know, or, and, and, and accrue the financial benefit of being able to maintain their players. To me, uh, the playoffs are going to put a, a financial burden on the four clubs that have to do it, that the others don't have to do. And I know that exists every year, but Tip, in a typical year, there's not a three-month gap between three and a half-month gap between games. It's right after everybody is still under contract. I don't want to complain about it. You know, I've seen on the internet that some people say we should turn down uh, our playoff spot because we have said that is a difficult position, and I think there is. Uh, I, I don't even understand that question. I guess it comes from a very jaded perspective, um, but I could only imagine. I mean, we're going to do whatever it takes to give ourselves as good a chance in the playoffs while also working towards next year. And I can promise you this, one of the things that Rob and I have, have been working on since day one with the, with, of, the, of the lockdown with, with everyone is what are we doing next year? And we've, we've scenario planned. Um, right now, we're, we're fortunate, you know? Right now, it's the football side of the business that has to focus on the football. Matt, Neil, Kelly, Don, Richard, everybody on the business side that is not on furlough, which is a very limited number of people, I can promise you we are focusing A, on how to pay for the playoffs and B, moving forward beyond that and what we are doing for next year. And it is critical, I, I, I believe in what the EFL is saying, it is critical to finish the season. The thing that kind of is difficult for me to accept is that the EFL has said we have to finish the season and four teams, four, four clubs are being forced to pay for it without anybody, without any help. You know, early on, I, I kind of figured the four playoff teams would at least get their uh, testing paid for, but that's not the case. I mean, the carrot is that the team that wins the playoffs uh, sees a, a massive rise in their revenue next season. So it's all, you know, we'll, we'll get a, a bonus, if you will, well, of a fair few million quid. English football is English football has consistently fed the gambler mentality. So I guess you're right, man. We got a 20. Um, although if you, if you look at the current odds out there, I, I guess we don't necessarily have, I guess the people don't think we have a 25% chance of winning. But, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, if we win, all the problems are solved. They are 100% solved. We've already scenario planned for what we would do 
uh, next year under that. The three that don't qualify are going to be under a little bit more of a strain than everybody else. And obviously, Wickham being the smallest turnover club out of the four, I think uh, the problems are just exacerbated a little bit. You mentioned that you're planning ahead for next season. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much guarantee as to what next season's going to look like with doubts about whether or not they'll be able to be spectators and fans in stadiums, which would mean that clubs would have to take on all their staff's uh, costs again without the footfall and revenue that comes with having fans in stadiums. How much of an issue do you think that could be? I mean, I think a lot of football fans out there are just assuming that we're going to get through this, assuming we're going to get to September and the English football pyramid will remain the same. But is it going to be that easy? No. If anybody's assuming it's easy, I think it's because they're used to whoever the owner of their club is just pumping up and pumping in enough money to cover whatever the losses are, no matter what they are. Um, no, it's not going to be easy. It's definitely not going to be easy to be a sustainable, you know, club next year. Um, you know, we were obviously, we, we, we obviously bought into a club that was losing money and we wanted to turn it around and we were, were making progress towards that front. So there was an amount that we sort of expected to lose the first couple of years, but I, you know, uh, under some of the scenarios, depending on when supporters come back, that's either doubled or tripled. Could the club feasibly play in league one next season? from September through to, say, February without without fans at Adams Park? Yeah. <laughs> Just got to figure out how to pay for it. <laughs> yeah. You know, but um, my entire life has been spent investing in managing, founding startup and growth companies. So, uh, and, and Rob has been an entrepreneur his entire life uh, as well. And so anybody that has ever... Uh, been involved in a startup or growth business uh, understands that uh, the the long term gain once you do achieve that sustainability it is in a good investment worth that those early investments. Have we sort of looked at what it would cost if we don't have any supporters through December or March or that? Uh, yeah, um, but it's also early modeling on on COVID and how it's going to affect the population was uh, aggressive. Um, uh, the numbers continue to trend better and better. Um, so we're hopeful that given what everyone has learned, I believe uh, that, you know, hopefully we'll have supporters in sooner rather than later, but we're just going to have to deal with whatever we have to deal with. We don't like to spend too much time thinking about the what ifs. Um, we just sort of like to like to think about a few different scenarios as they could play out and adapt our plan based on whatever those assumptions are to get to those three or four points. And Pete, there's quite a lot of doom around at the moment, obviously around the future of the lower leagues and also plenty of solutions being proposed, being put forward long term, how to uh, get back onto an even keel, a way of a way of balancing what's been an unbalanced structure for, for too long. Uh, again, another hypothetical where you're in charge. Where would you start if you were tasked with coming up with some solutions to, to balance the English game now that you've been involved with it for a while? I have a feeling it might be linked to what you, you mentioned earlier, that gambler mentality in English football. I don't actually think it's it's possible to take away that gambler mentality because you're talking about a structure where 
you know, if you invest in a team at, at League Two and you eventually get into the championship or Premier League, you know, uh, the payoff is it's unbelievable if you get there in a sustainable, cautious manner. But then again, uh, you know, I, I almost relate it to you know, a casino um, where, you know, you just see in a casino, you see some guys just playing penny nickel quarter slots. And then there's always the crazy VIP rooms and the where, you know, you got guys gambling a hundred thousand pounds on every roll of the craps table. And so um, the world loves football. Entrepreneurs, uh, very wealthy people around the world love football. And uh, the the English game, it's where it started. It is there are the biggest leagues in the you know the Premier League is the is the biggest league in the world. The Championship is the fifth most watched league in the world. And so you have a worldwide pool of potential investors that are looking to get into the game. So I, I don't think you can take away the gambler mentality altogether. Uh, but I, do I believe that you could structure it better to where the the card game is more fair from a top to bottom. Yes. Uh, do I think there are some mechanisms in there that you know that kind of amplify that gambler mentality? Yes. Parachute payments. Man, I, I think that's probably one of the worst things to be introduced in English football uh, ever. Uh, it's, it's, it's worse than VAR in my opinion. <laughs> um, I mean, if you just look at it, I, I think almost like, a, a, a more than a billion, maybe like a billion, 1.25 billion pounds have been given to maybe a dozen clubs over the last, how long has it been in place? Five or six years? A little bit longer, I think, but it, it's been, there've been different yeah. sort of aspects to it. It's been changed. You know, a bit. I mean, I think there was 250 million pounds that went to seven clubs in 19 in this past year. And that's two and a half times the solidarity money given all the other EFL member clubs combined. One of the things that really shocks me is that some of the clubs that built the first division in this country over a hundred years have never even had a taste of that money. I mean, you're talking about Leeds United, Portsmouth, Ipswich. Uh, they're some of the greatest clubs in the country. And now there's a wall between them and the league that they built. It's not like it's done any good. I mean, it's, it's only built the wall. If you look at the clubs that, that have gotten that money, and I understand the rationale given to it is the fact that, you know, we can't sign players to play in the Premier League uh, unless we can guarantee their wages, but that's bullshit. And the fact that, you know, I, you can structure these contracts to where if you do drop out of the, out of the Premier League, the, the wage either lowers or the player is given a free release. And so there are ways to craft your contracts to, and we have to do it. So all of our players have league one wages, league two wages, championship wages. And I believe for the first time ever, we have recently negotiated a contract for a uh, Wickham player that included a premier league wage. <laughs> kind of understand the rationale, but I think it's uh it's a bit ridiculous, especially when you look at really the ratio of parachute payments to solidarity money. Entrepreneurs around the world are looking at that money and how to use it to uh, do a leveraged buyout of clubs. Which clearly doesn't feel right for 
you know, for for well, any fans listening to to this, no matter no matter where they're based, that it doesn't sit right, really. Uh, I, I would yeah. say, and that's just my opinion with um, with with how I certainly think that those funds should be used. So potentially that's a a solution to to ring fence the parachute payments to be used in in a specific way to change the distribution well, model. Seems to let, be. Let suggested. me ask you this: do you, do, Let me ask it this way: Do you think if that two hundred fifty million pounds was distributed to uh, championship clubs, League One and League, or just League One and League Two clubs. Would that improve football in England? Well, I suppose it would be used in various different ways depending on who's running the different club. So it's uh, a, a, yeah, a lot of, yeah, yeah. of things to a lot of things to think about. A lot of things to think about. Pete, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time, and and we wish yourself and Wicked Wanderers the very best in the League One playoffs. No worries. Thanks, boys. A real. Pleasure to be joined uh, on the Going Up, Going Down podcast by Craig McHale-Smith. Now, there are a number of reasons why we are grateful for your time, Craig, because we're talking about so many different situations and circumstances across the EFL, some of them very difficult, some of them controversial, some of them leaving a a sour taste for, for many fans and clubs. And for some other clubs, it's been very lucky. So we're talking to you as a player who this season's been on loan at Stevenage, who, as discussed, might be relegated, but might not be relegated from the EFL. That's not been cleared up yet. You're on loan, or you were on loan, from Wiccan Wanderers, who, of course, due to the points per game method being the way that the league was finished, uh, moved from eighth spot to third spot and are heading into the playoffs. We'll be playing in the League One playoffs with a chance for promotion. And of course, we cannot forget, and many people listening will remember these years fondly, you're a club legend at, at Peterborough, at Posh, who lost out on an opportunity for promotion, firstly due to COVID, because it stopped them while they were in flying form, um, but also this method of points per game of deciding the leagues means that Peterborough are feeling very hard done by as well. Most of all, Craig, you're, you're a footballer, who is out of contract this summer. And that is a, a big reason why we want to talk to you. This is a, a circumstance and a scenario that I don't think is necessarily being discussed enough. So thank you very much, first and foremost, for joining us on the podcast today. No, no problem, no problem. So a couple of things to get into, really. I suppose to start with, on Tuesday, George and I were just on Twitter, on WhatsApp, on the phone, trying to get a steer on what was happening, trying to make sure that we knew all of the potential outcomes and and what was going to happen. How much have you, as a player, in many ways directly impacted by what was happening on Tuesday and the decisions and the votes? How engaged were you with all the discussions leading up to it and how across things were you on Tuesday as well? To be honest, not too much. I've kind kind of just stayed away a little bit and allowed kind of the situation develop itself and obviously there's been lots and lots of kind of permutations of what people expecting it to be and what people want it to be um it's just such an unprecedented situation like there's there's nothing has been kind of put in place just in case something like this was to happen so it was just a case of waiting to to hear what was happening and obviously you've got boys like texting and hoping for the the best result at Wickham obviously there was a at one stage. There was a chance of automatic. Then it was playoffs and maybe missing out on a playoff. So, yeah, it's, I, I think now it's finally decided. I think it's just it's just kind of gives everyone time to now focus on actually what's going to happen for for that club the next season. 
What is the feeling from the Stevenage side? What was the reaction to the news that actually relegation from League Two is going to happen? Uh, but we don't know yet whether it's it's going to be Stevenage. What's the reaction there? It's difficult, obviously. You say like the the, the club look like they're, they're going to be relegated. It's hard, obviously, with with ten. Obviously, there was ten games to go. So there was obviously a chance of, of kind of getting out of it. So not playing them 10 games is a little bit disappointing. And and with the situation with, I think it's with Macclesfield, with regards to they're getting points deducted, it's it's still up in the air. So there's, they, they can't be, they can't really move on just yet and, and plan for a season, whether it's in, in the conference or whether it's in League Two. So they're just kind of waiting for that decision to, to come through really like I think they, they they just want to know whether it's relegation or whether it's it's they they're, they're saved so they can actually move the, the their next season forward and actually Wickham Wanderers started training or returned to training again uh, in groups on Monday not contact training yet but certainly important to get a few weeks in before the playoff semi-final first leg uh, and you've been back with your parent club Wickham back in training in the first few days uh, since their return. How did that come about? Did you ask if you could go back to training? Were you told to report back to training? It must have been a difficult situation with you having been on loan as well at Stevenage. My loan with Stevenage was, I think, ended on the 29th of April, which is obviously what was meant to be the end of the season. Right. Um, but I was, we spoke and it was kind of like, I wanted to go back training, even if they said I didn't have to report back to training. I wanted to go back because my contract's up in the in the summer. So if I was to, to play for Wickham again, great. And, and if not, then I wanted to make sure that I was I was fit and ready to join another club because obviously I, I, I believe these seasons are going to kind of roll straight into to next season. So for me, I, like, I need, I've had, what, it's been 12 weeks, so three months of doing bits and pieces. Um, but I want to make sure that when the next season rolls round, whatever happens, I'm, I'm fit to, to dive straight into it. It's been so much discussion about how it will affect players physically having had this period of trying to stay in shape but ultimately not being able to replicate, let alone match football, but even just training. What's it been like the first few days? How's the body feeling? Yeah, it's a bit bit stiff. Obviously, I'm I'm a little bit older now, so it affects me a little bit more. Um, But yeah, it's been been good. It's been good to be getting back into it, um, kind of training on your own. It's only as so far you can push yourself. You you never really know kind of how fast you're running and how 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 fit you actually are until you kind of run up against someone who's probably fit or fitter than you. So um, it's been nice to kind of get back to it, uh, see kind of where where I'm at at a level of fitness, um, just kind of feel a ball again. I say it's, it's three months without kind of really uh, properly touching a ball. So it's just nice to kind of get that feel back, kind of get back to some normality of actually training um, and kind of seeing the lads. And you're in a situation where, although your loan at Stevenage is finished and although Stevenage won't be playing any more football this season and Wickham will be playing football, your parent club, um, you're not yet clear whether you're actually able to play in the playoffs or not. I'm pretty sure, Craig, that, that loan players returning are not eligible to play any more football this season. But but you were saying to me off air earlier that you haven't been told that yet. It's still a bit up in the air for you. No, nothing. Nothing's been said. Um, I think they're obviously speaking to to who who needs to be spoken to. Whether it's the EFL or, or the FA, I, I don't know. Um, I just think it's a very difficult situation, as as we were saying. Like I've, I've kind of like there was ten games to go 
um, with Stevenage and with me out of contract um, in the summer, those 10 games were, were massive for me. That that was giving me an opportunity to to prove to people that I, I'm still fit, I'm still healthy, um, to have a, earn a contract at Stevenage or Wickham or, or somewhere else. So uh, I think it's really, really difficult um, kind of to have that those 10 games taken away and then and then obviously my parent club um, having the opportunity to play in the playoffs and not actually being allowed to, to whether I could play in those games. It kind of put me in a, a really difficult situation. I, I think my last game was probably January, February time. So it's a, it's a long, long time in football. Um, and with the situation kind of going from one season to another, um, I don't know how that's going to play out with me kind of finding a, a new club, a new contract. So um, I'm hoping there's there's a bit of sensibility, not not for myself, but obviously for other players as well, probably in the same situation that, that are still trying to earn a contract. Um, whether they can they can play in these these uh, playoff games or obviously for the championship uh, they've they've got their their remaining games to play. Um, as I said, I hope there's just some stability from the 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 boards that might look at it and and say yeah like we're, we're allowed these guys to play because they've they've got their kind of their livelihoods at stake. It's interesting that you are so keen to play if you're able to. There have been some examples in the championship with a slightly different circumstances they have got many more games to play and they will play into July and potentially towards the very end of it and there have been some players whose contracts are up in the summer who have weighed up the risk of potential injury hindering them uh, going forward um, you would rather if you can play you weigh that up and you decide that actually that that would be worth the risk for you yeah I, I think so I, I feel I, I need to, to be playing I need like to people to see that I'm still playing that I still I still can uh, physically do what needs to be done. I think, as I said, those 10 games uh, is a lot of football for me to, to prove that. Um, I think, obviously, players at different um, kind of times in their careers, I'm, I'm getting older, so I, I, I think I need to play younger players who have played and maybe have moves on the horizon. Uh, maybe it's, it's a good thing not to play to, to, to save themselves from uh, maybe risking injury if, if they've got something else lined up. So, um, there's obviously lots of different factors to to playing and not playing. As I say, in my circumstances, um, I, I need to play to prove to people that I can I can still do it to to earn myself a, a contract somewhere. How much has the the current situation and the kind of doomsday predictions about how difficult it's going to be for League One and League Two teams has that put you off at all? Actually, making an attempt to to gain a new contract, it feels like it, it's a a really difficult position for you to be in. Yeah, no, I've, I, I love football. I love playing, and I want to play as as long as I can. Obviously, I think financially, with as you say, with everything that's happened, it's going to put, put massive strain and on on clubs, and they'll they'll have to maybe cut squads or cut um, the, the the size of the wages they're going to be offering um, players. So it's it's going to be um, an interesting kind of. Uh, period between this season and next season um, of what clubs do. Um, as I said, for, with regards to me, I, I, I want to play um, financially. Obviously, I, I want to do well, but that's that's not the biggest importance of me. I, I still believe I've got a lot to offer to teams and, and that's the reason I, I still want to carry on. Have you thought about what other options or what other paths you might take uh, if if it does get too difficult, if there's really no chance of, of finding another contract for all of these reasons that are ultimately out of out of your control. Yeah. You know, we talk a lot or we have talked a lot about 
the difficulty that footballers have in uh, maybe segueing to a different career once they can't play anymore or, or trying to stay in the game and the challenges that that faces. What other options do you think there are for yourself? Um, well, I was going to do my coaching badges this summer and obviously that were that was uh, kind of uh, put, in, put on hold now just with everything going on. Um, I like kind of the strength and conditioning side. Um, I, I was like, uh, there's a course... Um, called functional patterns which i was going to do this summer as well again that's kind of been put on hold so it's just the, the little bits and pieces that i was going to put in place with regards to kind of moving uh my career on behind the scenes um has just kind of been put on hold a little bit but those are the two paths i i'm in, interested in um yeah so it's, it's just a really weird situation it's kind of like it's not how obviously any of us expected this year to go or how the season was going to go um, it might mean I might have to drop down levels. Um, there, there might have to be other things I have to do um, around that um, that may not in, include football. It's just it's just it's just such a weird situation. And, and until kind of like my my contract runs out and uh, kind of the, the the transfer window uh, for kind of next season is open and clubs actually saying what they can afford to do, um, then I don't quite know. Uh, where I'm going to be in the next few after well in the next few months after July, and how much of an impact have you felt this uncertainty have on you psychologically? I know that the PFA uh, did a survey of a few hundred players uh, that showed that a large percentage of players in a similar position to you uh, are feeling you know really anxious with this uncertain uh, with this uncertainty in need of support. Uh, I also know that you know you've you've got a lot on your plate with your family and a lot of pet a lot of pets as well I think but <laughs> yeah. I'm interested to know how this has impacted you psychologically on on, on that side of things as well. Um I think I've, I've I've really taken a step back like I think like a, a few years ago I, I think this would have really panicked me um and really really put a lot of pressure on me um mentally um but I feel like I've I've kind of just taken a step back I can't control anything that's that's happening in the future other than doing what I'm doing now and trying to put these um, things in, in order. Um, as you say, I've got a young family and, and a lot of responsibilities, but I think the more I think about that, the, the, the more pressure it puts on me and the more anxious I get. So I've kind of just trying to take that pressure away. As I said, focus on and on the things I can control and, and trying to put bits into place that will kind of uh, help me uh, if I need to, uh, if I, I don't get a contract and I'm still looking past the months of July, then I've got things in place that will will help me for a time. So I've, yeah, I've just I've just tried to take a step back and kind of really just put everything in perspective and try and take it, take it kind of just being in the present and moving like from day to day. I know you've always been a big part of of dressing rooms at clubs that you've been at. So you know, aside from yourself, what about the perspective of of younger players that you know? Perhaps the guys in in their mid to late twenties, sort of far enough through their career that they're established, that they've been pro footballers for a decent amount of time, and, and probably thought they had a fair few years left, and, and and might now be facing much larger concerns much earlier than they than they thought they would have. Is is that something that you've been aware of that 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 sort of uncertainty amongst teammates or, or friends in the game? Yeah, I think it's it's obviously this situation is is I think it's highlighted it more kind of like the uncertainty of football I think when you're when it's season after season you don't really take that in you don't really realize how quickly you can actually be stopped and how quick you can be be put into a, a difficult situation so I think this is kind of this whole situation 
for everyone has, has, been, has been a massive eye opener. And I think hopefully it, it gives people a real uh, reason to put things into place, no matter how young you are or, or what you've achieved in the game, to put start putting things into place just in case another scenario like this happens. Is this is this is unprecedented? This has never happened before. So it's and say it might just be that. Um, wake up call for people just to go right I need to put these blocks into place just in case the, this this situation happens um, so hopefully as I said there, there's obviously the PFA have got bits and pieces and hopefully other people may be able to put stuff into place and, and come up with stuff that allows footballers to to um, start putting in the work that will, will maybe kind of take this little bit of mental strain away if you if you've got other stuff in the background ready to go I know that the PFA do offer uh, a lot of support to players. Do you think that going the other way, that players uh, are aware of what the PFA can offer? Do you think that there's a, an understanding from players that there is help and that it's it, it, it's, a, it's a good thing to do to seek help? Because previously we've heard about the sort of mentality in dressing rooms and that phrase man up and, and bottling up emotions and, and anxieties. Do, do you feel like there's been progress made in that regard and that maybe the younger generation of players are, are more open to looking for help um, I think the, the PFA do do a pretty good job I think there's obviously their, their, their website and their with all the, the kind of the courses you can do and the help that is that's available um, and they are fairly proactive in, with going into clubs um, and and kind of speaking to people and, and seeing seeing help um, I just feel um, there needs to be a, a kind of a bit more of a an area where professionals can, like players can go um, with guys to kind of after football and or even kind of during football with regards to like um, specific courses, finding courses, education um, and kind of being not forced, but making sure that you are doing stuff that, that benefits you in, in the future. Um, as I said, I think the PFA are great with, they've got courses on their website and they do offer stuff. Um, I just think if there's a place where players can go, which is a bit more diverse and they can put their own interests in and um, find courses and, and education that will put them in a place um, kind of after football, I think would be beneficial as well. It's, it's just so, it's such a difficult situation because as a footballer, I don't think sometimes you, you look into the future, you always think football is going to be there and, and, and like it's going to go on until your 30s and nothing can take that away. And, then, and from this, I think everyone's seen that just something like this this virus can stop football in its tracks and sometimes you need to have something in the background ticking over that may just help you kind of look for the next steps or be prepared for the next steps. Do you have an agent? And, and if so, what sort of conversations have you been having with your agent over the last few weeks? How's that sort of going in terms of finding prospective clubs and, and trying to put yourself in front of them? Yeah, I haven't, I haven't actually got an agent. I haven't had one for, for a while. It's just kind of like just speaking to people and, and, and kind of being put in contact with people. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird situation now. Cause obviously I've not so much kind of put my name out there. I haven't been speaking to people I kind of wanted to let my football do the talking on the pitch, which has kind of been really difficult just with the situation at Stevenage with kind of a lot of changing managers and styles of play. And then obviously the, the, the season ending early. So it's going to be an interesting situation really. I think, I've kind of got to let my contract run down because I don't really think I'm be able to talk to people while I'm contracted. And then obviously once uh, my contract comes to an end, then then it'll, it'll be a case of kind of ringing around and ringing people and seeing if kind of uh, managers need a player like me. 
um, and just working from there. Really, it's it's a, it's a it's a, a, a different situation that I've been into. If I still want to be a, a professional footballer, then now now I've got to put the hard that hard graft in myself and and, and put myself out there. It's been fantastic to talk to you. It's been really good and really valuable, I think, to hear your perspective uh, as someone who has been very much affected in terms of the clubs that you play for on this week's news, but also in terms of being able to contract this summer. So certainly wish you all the best, Craig, and thank you very much for joining us. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Right. So next up in what's been a a big week in boardrooms across the EFL, virtual boardrooms, probably uh, a more apt phrase. The latest change at boardroom level comes uh, at Charlton Athletic. And as ever, it's not straightforward. It's not particularly clear cut. For many, this story might have been a little lost in the COVID-19 noise and the fallout of, of all that's been going on. But thankfully, Jack Pitbrook has been covering the story for the Athletic. Uh, Jack, Thank you, first of all, for for joining us. This, I imagine, has been a tricky story to cover at times over the last month or two. Yeah, it's certainly been an interesting one in the sense that it's been moving very fast, but also you're never quite sure exactly where things stand. So, you know, it's the kind of story where you can draft up a story and you spend some time working on it and then all of a sudden things have changed again. Uh, so it's all it's all very murky. Would you be able to summarise to those who maybe haven't followed the story since the club had been bought from Roland de Châtelet? Many people would have thought, great, we, we've, we've, we've wiped our hands of Roland and, and all that he brought to the club over his uh, ownership. Uh, could you summarise what the situation was and how it started to change in early March? At the start of January... Roland du Châtelet sold Charlton Athletic to East Street Investments, which was made up primarily of two men. Um, Tanu Nima, who was an investor from Abu Dhabi, who owned 65% of the shares, and Matt Southall, who was a former football agent, who owned 35% of the shares. So they were basically the two halves, or the two the two main players in ESI. Um, Southall and Nima then had a huge falling out, largely over the money that Southall was taking out of the club and accusations that Nima was not investing anything into the club. The two men started criticising each other on social media in a way that was really unprecedented. Like, I've never seen two boardroom figures hammering each other on social media. The two men then tried to, tried to sack one another and eventually Nima was successful. And I think it was on the 12th of March that he had... Southall removed from Charlton Athletic. He had him evicted from the building. The police were called, and Nima effectively took was in sole control from March until earlier this week, or I think perhaps over the weekend, when Nima effectively handed control of East Street Investments and therefore Charlton Athletic to this new guy, Paul Elliott. Do you have any understanding of? Why, having won the battle, so to speak, with Matt Southall, Tanu Nima, not long after buying the club or being involved with the purchase of the club and becoming the major shareholder, what changed for him? Why did he decide, actually, this is not for me? Well, I don't know what changed, but I do know that owning Charlton Athletic is not a fun or profitable thing to do. The monthly wage bill, certainly a few months ago before the deferrals came in, that players and senior staff agreed to. I think the monthly wage bill was estimated at around £450,000. Now, Charlton Athletic do not make an awful lot of money, and they make even less money in the era of coronavirus, when they can't play home games at the Valley. 
So simply by owning Charlton Athletic, you're putting yourself on the hook for a huge bill every month. Unless you're going to throw millions and millions at it in investment and try and, you know, improve the team and make them competitive and pay the money involved in that, owning Charlton is is tough. It's not fun. And I think that is why Nima eventually decided to give it up. Like he, he put out a statement on Instagram on Monday night, which he then quickly deleted, but was subsequently reposted on the Charlton website where he said that he recognised that it was time for him to step aside. I'll just bring it up here. He said, I have made the difficult decision, having received advice and listening to fans' wishes, to hand the club over to a consortium that will have sufficient time and be in a position to take the club forward. I don't really know what changed in the sense that it was always a very difficult thing for Tanu Nima to own if he wasn't going to invest money. But clearly he has recently decided that it is no longer worth his time. So let's talk about this consortium then, because it seemed to anyone following the story like there were a few interested parties in taking over Charlton, despite all the perils that comes alongside it. Former Swansea owner Hugh Jenkins publicly stated that he was interested in buying the club. The notorious Lawrence Bassini, who was once at Watford and tried to buy Bolton, also set to claim to wanting to buy the club. Do we know why... Nima has ended up selling to Elliot rather than any of the other parties. I suspect that Nima's lawyer, Chris Farnell, who is with a sports law firm called IPS Law, he's a very, very well-known sports lawyer who has worked with Massimo Cellino at Leeds, he's worked at Bury, he worked for Hugh Jenkins at Swansea, he helped get Fabio Capello the England job back in 2007. So he's been representing Nima, and I understand that he has been instrumental in the pass the passing of the club over to Elliot. So uh, Peter Varney, the former Chelsea chief executive who's still trying to buy the club, he told me the other day that he has been speaking to Farnell and Elliot through this process. So I would suspect that Farnell has been involved in this. Why exactly it's gone to Elliot rather than any of these other investors, I don't know because, you know, it has sounded as if these other investors were very keen. Hugh Jenkins, a former client of Farnell, has been interested. Bassini, a former associate of Matt Southall, even claimed late last month that he had a deal in place to buy the club. And it's certainly possible that the club will change hands again, given that we don't know anything really about Elliot's commitment to the club, his funding, his willingness to pay the bills and keep the whole operation afloat. So I wouldn't I would not be surprised at all if all of the parties who have been interested in buying from Tanu Nima would still be interested in buying from Elliot. But it, why exactly Elliot owns the club or rather owns ESI right now, I can't give you a straight answer. I mean I read your piece out this morning uh, in the Athletic and it is obviously tells us a lot about what's going on at the moment and we'll talk about Paul Varney in a second. But before we move on to Varney and his role in what's going on at the Valley. Just want to ask you a couple of questions about Elliot himself, because there doesn't seem to be much information about him. When I saw the name linked to Charlton, I immediately thought it was former Charlton player Paul Elliot, who's weirdly been linked to taking over the club in the past. But that's not the case. It's a a Manchester-based businessman, but there doesn't seem to be much else about him uh, online. Can you shed any light to any Charlton fans listening as to who this mysterious Paul Elliot is? So the Charlton... Charlton Athletic put out a statement 
yesterday morning in which they said that Elliot has had a successful career in business, having started with a property management company, which he then turned into a large portfolio of residential and commercial units. When I spoke to Peter Varney on the phone about him the other day, he said that uh, he'd heard Paul Elliot was a property financier. Clearly, his background is in yeah investment and real estate. Uh, I've been doing my own research in the last few days, and there's there's one or two property companies, the final company's house connected to a Paul Elliot, but I couldn't I couldn't tell you in with confidence and in detail exactly what companies he's been working with and what his background is. Like the whole, you know, he, he this man was a mystery to people in football right up until the weekend when his name first emerged, and I think a lot of Charlton fans can have the right to demand a little bit more information and a bit more of a and, a and to hear a bit more from Elliot about what his intentions are. Jack, one of the things that has always concerned George and I when covering matters of, of clubs in trouble off the field and at boardroom level is, is when the stadium, for example, and or the training ground and other facilities are, are sort of separated, uh, in a sense, from the club. Uh, are you able to tell us who currently owns the valley and the training ground, uh, to what extent these assets are, are separated from essentially Charlton Athletic and uh, and whoever owns them at this moment in time? Yeah, so the training ground and the stadium, I believe, is still owned by Roland du Chatelet, the who owned the club from 2014 until January of this year. And obviously this presents a challenge to any club. You know, everybody knows that any football league club is much healthier if they own their training ground and their stadium rather than if they do not. Like you're in a much weaker position if you don't own those assets. Um, one of the things that lots of Charlton fans want is for the club to re- regain control of those assets. And that's why Peter Varney said to me in our interview that he would like, you know, if he is successful in taking control of the club, and there's a huge question mark over that, that he would like to buy those back from Duchatelet. But and that means that any anyone owning Charlton in future will have to negotiate with Duchatelet for the purchase purchase of those assets. The problem is, you know, they cost millions and millions of pounds, and right now the club doesn't have that. So you'd need someone with very deep pockets to to bring them back under the club's control. We've spoken in passing about Peter Varney, who you cover uh, in your piece out this morning, and who you spoke to. As well, uh, he was a former chief chief executive of the club. Can you clarify as to whether or not he's part of Elliot's consortium, or is he looking to now is his consortium looking to purchase the club off the new owner? No. So Peter Varney is not part of Paul Elliot's consortium. Peter Varney is external to what's going on at the moment. Um, so he's a, he's a bit of a Charlton legend, really. So he was chief executive. Back in the Alan Kerbishy days, back when Charlton were finishing in the top half of the Premier League from 1998 to 2007, he returned briefly to the club to help them in a moment of crisis in 2009. He then fronted another consortium that took control of the club in 2010 and led to another period of relative success in, the, in that he appointed former left-back Chris Powell as manager and then Chris Powell's Charlton won League One with 101 points the following season and things were looking up for Charlton before that consortium which v- Varney was part of then sold to D- Duchatelet in sort of 2013-2014. So he knows the club inside out, he's been a Charlton fan for 60 years 
And he is looking now to get back in by, I think he initially had been speaking to Nima. Uh, and as he said, he is hoping to speak to Elliot and Farnell this week to establish their intentions regarding the club. Uh, I think ideally Varney and his backer, Andrew Barkley, who is the grandson of Sir David Barkley, would like to buy the club. But of course, that's, you know, who, we don't know how receptive Elliot and Farnell would be to that. Jack, you mentioned that whoever is owning the club has a job on their hands financially, keeping it afloat, uh, led to believe that uh, Paul Elliott's group have been uh, funding the club uh, over the last month uh, and this month as well. Is there any indication or do you have any suspicion, having followed the story closely, on the next steps? You've mentioned that there's a very large investment needed just to take over the club, to fund the club and ideally to purchase the training grounds and the valley as well. Uh, what are your feelings on, on what the next few weeks might see in this scenario? The two big things in the next few weeks, before we even get onto the ownership, are Charlton's how Charlton do on the pitch. They're currently in the championship relegation zone. Uh, the championship resumes on the 20th of June. Um, if Lee Bowyer's team, without Lyle Taylor, their best player, can win enough games to stay in the championship then things become a little bit less worrying. The other immediate priority is simply to pay the wage bill every month. The wage bill is high, given that the club don't have any income or any real assets or any money in the bank. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge to pay the wages every month. And clearly, Elliot and the people around him have found the money last month to pay the salaries, but they're going to have to keep doing that. And those really are the immediate challenges before we get on to the question of like, the future ownership of Charlton Athletic. I'm sure there would still be other interested parties. I'm sure the names you mentioned earlier on, Bassini, Jenkins, would be keen on investing or working alongside Elliot's consortium to take control. But at this point, we just don't really know. Like it's, It is all up in the air. It is a big mystery for Charlton fans as to what really the, the future holds. But I certainly think that given the financial reality of the club, given the lack of income because there's no fans coming through the gate for a while, given the knock-on effect that might have on sponsorship, given the possibility of relegation to League One, which we have to accept is something that, that might well happen, it's not unreasonable to be quite to be worried, to be worried about the possibility of administration or what rele- whatever relegation might bring. Uh, so clearly, it is a very, it is a very, very difficult time for the football club. Thank you so much for for joining us on this going up, going down podcast. Thanks for having me. Jack's obviously been following this story very closely as well, writing it up for the Athletic. Numerous articles uh, about the situation starting at the beginning of March, and well, a new piece out this morning talking to Peter Varney, a prospective owner. So uh, to check out all of Jack's reporting on the Charlton Athletic boardroom story, head to the Athletic, search his name, Jack Pickbrook. You'll be able to look at all of his articles about this topic. And if you're not a subscriber already, uh, the Athletic athletic.co.uk forward slash EFL pod will get you there. You'll get a free trial. So you'll be able to check out all that the site has to offer, not just Jack Pitbrook, but a whole host of other magnificent sports writing on site. So do give it a go today uh, by going to theathletic.co.uk forward slash EFL pod.